Hello and welcome to Counterthought, a podcast dedicated to my counterthoughts about mainstream media, politics, and culture, and the impact on our nation. I am your host, Brian Fletter. You can follow this podcast on its Facebook page, Counterthought Podcast, on Instagram at counter underscore thought, and on Twitter at counter underscore podcast. Hey, thanks for joining me. This is episode two of Counterthought. This episode, we're going to talk about intellectual dishonesty and why we need to strive for more intellectual honesty. Have y'all noticed that there seems to be more intellectual dishonesty than honesty across our national media outlets today? But why is that? And what are the consequences for our country? To start, let's define intellectual dishonesty and intellectual honesty. Intellectual dishonesty is the advocacy of a position known to be false. It's an argument which is misused to advance an agenda or to reinforce one's deeply held beliefs in the face of overwhelming evidence to the contrary. Intellectual honesty is the thinking that you will not allow your beliefs regarding alternative opinions to alter your pursuit of the truth. The essential aspect of intellectual honesty is that you will pursue the truth even if it goes against your own previously held beliefs or narratives. And will hold principles over politics. Intellectual honesty and intellectual dishonesty begin at the same point with cognitive diversity. Now, cognitive diversity is just a fancy way or another way of saying people that think differently. So the question that needs to be asked is, how do two concepts that share the same origin become polar opposites? And to answer that, I think we need to take a step back and look at dishonesty more broadly. First question, why would someone be dishonest? I think there are three main reasons why someone would be dishonest. Number one, as a way to impress and or entertain others. Number two, as a form of protection, a way to protect others, such as a white lie, a way to protect themselves, to avoid trouble or negative consequences, and as a way to protect their interests, like to receive funding or support. And then the third way or third reason why someone I think would be dishonest is as a form of manipulation in order to deceive, to get what you want, or to gain or maintain power. And I want to look at each one of these, or examples of each one of these, in this episode. First reason, as a way to impress and or entertain others. An example I came up with, since this is a podcast that is going to involve politics, is dialing all the way back to January of 2017 where Trump, after his inauguration, touted that his crowd size was larger than Obama's. And if y'all followed politics then, or maybe you just caught a headline, or maybe a short little clip on the news at the time, that's all he talked about. Crowd size, crowd size, crowd size. And you might remember during the debates, we got on to hand size, but after his inauguration, it was all about the crowd size. Because Trump wants to do everything big. If you know anything about his buildings, his real estate empire, it's big, 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 extravagant, everything. But you go back and you actually compare the photos, there's no way that Trump crowd size was bigger than Obama's. And if you brought that up, like if you were part of the national media, the pushback coming from his press press secretary at the time, Sean Spicer, was, oh, well, this picture, you know, this picture was taken about an hour and a half before the ceremony began. And this picture over here of Obama, this was during the middle of it, during the middle of his speech. Of course, there's a difference in crowd size. Or you might have heard, well, during Trump's inauguration, you know, there were these, there was this uh, flooring that was put out over the grass to preserve the grass in the National Mall. And because of that contrast, because it was like a cream or an ivory color, you can more easily see the people 
Whereas in Obama's, there wasn't this cover to protect the grass. So it was a little more difficult to pick out the color of people's jackets from the grass and the dirt. Well, truth be told, you can go beyond the photos and go to the ratings. Nielsen said that there are 31 million people in TV viewership for Trump. That's 19% lower than in 2009 for Obama. And Reagan, going back into the 80s, had 41.8 million. The Metro of D.C., Metro ridership, was 600,000 for Trump, 800,000 in 2013 for Obama, and 1.1 million for Obama back in 2009. Now you get into online viewership, which is a little bit harder to track, especially nowadays compared eight years ago or, well, at the time, eight years ago, 2009 to 2013. So you could debate that a little bit. It's uh, hard to get a precise measurement, but it wouldn't close the gap. So why, with all this evidence, why... Did Trump for majority of his uh, his term touted that crowd size because he was set on wanting to impress and be the best. I read actually later on in the presidency that he admitted that if he could do one thing over again or do something over again, he would not have sent his press secretary, Sean Spicer, out day one talking about the crowd size. He admits that that got his presidency off on the wrong foot. Now, the second reason why I think someone could be dishonest, as I mentioned before, is as a form of protection. And I think there are three ways we can protect others, like a white lie. We can protect ourselves in order to avoid trouble or negative consequences. And we could use it to protect our interests, such as maybe receive funding or support for something. An example, recent example, I should say, you may have heard about it, comes from corporations and sports leagues and their support of equal voting rights. And more specifically, the recent uh, state of Georgia voting law that came out, which prompted Major League Baseball to withdraw its all-star game and draft from Atlanta. MLB released a statement and sounded off against the new Georgia voting law as racist. And then other local corporations, mainly Coke and Delta in the Atlanta area, sounded off as well. This story was on the news for about a full week and then trickled into a second week. And what you heard was people couldn't stand in line and have water or a snack and that this made it harder for everyone to vote and disenfranchise the black community and all of this stuff. You heard phrases tossed about recklessly, which ties into episode one. So if you have not listened to that, go back and listen to episode one. But you heard the phrase Jim Crow 2.0, when in fact, when you go and actually read the law, which I don't think Major League Baseball did when they issued the statement. They were just going based on the word of Stacey Abrams and others that did not support the law. You find that the Georgia law is less restrictive than New York and Delaware. Why do I choose New York? That's where Major League Baseball's headquarters are. You guessed it. And why Delaware? That's where President Joe Biden's from. Hmm, interesting. Jim Crow 2.0. Are you all familiar with Jim Crow? If you're not, here it is. The Jim Crow laws were a collection of state and local statutes that legalized racial segregation and indentured servitude and existed to take voting rights away and to control where blacks lived and how they traveled and to seize children for labor. Now, let's take a little bit closer look at this voting law. Here are nine facts about the Georgia voting law that you did not hear when it was going through the news for a week if you were watching um, the mainstream media. First off, the law actually expands early voting in most counties. There will be at least 17 days of early voting, starting 22 days before the election. And the hours will run from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., but the counties can choose to offer it from 7 to 7 if they want. And ID is required not just for in-person voting, but now also for mail-in voting. And if you remember, mail-in voting was a huge thing in the 2020 election, and it was new because of the pandemic. And many question whether or not 
there were enough thorough checks completed before it was instituted, and I guess how of a how good of a process it actually was. Third, absentee voting. This is all from a CBS.com article. New rules regulate drop boxes and shorten time frame for requesting and returning mail-in ballots. Now, in Georgia, you can get an absentee ballot regardless if you're not absentee. There are other states around the country where you can't do that. You have to have an excuse. New York is one of them. Where is MLB located? New York. So why are they being intellectually dishonest? And then what's even better, as I continue to go through this article, where did Major League Baseball decide to move their All-Star game? From Atlanta, whose black population is around 50% of the metro area, to Denver, Colorado, which has an 8 to 10% black population. I swear, I swear you can't make this stuff up. People say, some pundits say that it's the worst decision ever made by a sports commissioner in the United States. It's like so oblivious to what's going on. The food and drink lie. So you may have heard that voters standing in line cannot have food or drink. Well, that's not true. It's just that the food and drink cannot be distributed by a political organization. You can have your friends or family come by, bring you water, bring you a snack. The polling locations can have designated um, filtered water areas, you know, like the big old 10-gallon jug or whatever that's tipped upside down and water fountain, and you can walk over there while you're waiting in line and fill up your water. Another lie, another, I guess, heavily contested, is that now in Georgia, a state election board will have new powers and that will not be chaired by the Secretary of State. Also, the law makes it so that the results of the election are reported faster. You may remember that the state of Georgia took a couple extra days, and then with all the lawsuits, took a week or around a week, I believe, uh, to get their final results in. Whereas other states, such as Florida, had them in by the next morning. And I think it was around 98% or 99% in that night. It also sets up a hotline for voters to call and file complaints of either voter intimidation or illegal activity. And a runoff election period will be five weeks shorter. Previously, there were nine weeks that separated the two. And now that is a shorter time period. And you may remember Georgia had a runoff in the 2020 election. So what you heard whenever this uh, was first passed by the state legislature, you heard Jim Crow 2.0, which again is said to prevent blacks from voting. This law doesn't do that. That is a reckless behavior. That even came from the president of the United States. So if he's going to say lies like that, how many other people do you think are just going to take that and spit it right back out? Now, we're going to get into being a hypocritical. As I mentioned, Major League Baseball, the NBA, Coke, and Delta all cried foul with this new law talked about it was unfair and a racist law, but they talk about equal rights. So let's go down that path a little bit. What do MLB, the NBA, Coke, and Delta all have in common? They all do business with China. And the last time I checked, none of those organizations or companies have said that they would be withdrawing their business from China because of China's human rights violations. And why is that? My guess is it has to do with money and the millions and billions of dollars that they earn from the Chinese government through the Chinese economy. So they talk a big game in the United States, but don't follow through when it comes to their international business ties to the communist country of China, which currently has forced labor in certain provinces of their country. Another example of the second reason why someone may lie or be dishonesty would be protection. And in this case, to protect someone's interest. In this example, contested, depending, I guess, on uh, depending on your beliefs, that there is no such thing as biological, also known as binary sex, meaning male-female. There are plenty of people out there that believe there is no such thing as male and female. 
that the XX and the XY chromosomes do not exist as we once thought they existed or believed or were told they existed, like in ninth grade or something science class, whenever you took biology. And the argument against biological sex hinges on what is known as the difference or disorder of sexual development, abbreviated as DSD, or aka intersexuality. According to the National Institute of Health, DSD includes a group of congenital conditions that are associated with atypical development of internal and external genital structures. These are associated with variations in genes, developmental programming, and hormones. In other words, a DSD is a mismatch between a child's chromosomes or genetic material and the appearance of the child's genitals. A child may present with a DSD, difference of sexual disorder, either in infancy, childhood, or adolescence. Now, I don't know anyone who has a DSD, so I cannot speak from experience, so that's why I looked up these articles. But it is said to occur in approximately one out of every three to 4,000 children. And an argument goes, well, if you can have a DSD and someone who looks female could have male genitalia fully or partially formed, then there is no such thing as biological sex. No such thing as binary sex. But I argue that in order for the term difference or disorder, you have to have something to be different or a disorder from. You have to have a standard, a norm, a baseline, something for comparison. And that comparison, that norm, that baseline is biological and binary sex. Because if female or male doesn't exist as the standard, then how could anything be a disorder or difference? And if you don't believe this, that there is no standard, no norm, then that means you must believe that the 60 different types of DSDs, along with being a binary male or female, are all equal sexes. Not equal in the terms of treatment of the individual, but that one is just as frequent or as common as the other. And as I just mentioned, a DSD occurs in one out of every three to 4,000 children. Well, that doesn't seem too common. So how can they be equal when you're talking about 0.03% of all birth? Hmm. Now, third reason that someone may be dishonest is as a form of manipulation in order to deceive and to get what you want to gain or maintain power. This we see all the time. There's evil in this world. There's sin in this world, myself included. One example I have here of this form of manipulation or deception as an attempt to gain or maintain power is the support of transgender women, which is women born as males, in female athletics and calling that feminism. That is not feminism. That is anti-feminism. Think about it with me for a minute. Feminism is when you advocate for social, political, and all other rights of women to be equal to those of men. One of the most popular arguments or fights for feminism was voting rights. Today, there's still arguments that say that women are not paid at the same level as a male with the same qualifications. So this has been a battle for 100 years. Women have fought for centuries to be considered equal to men. And like I just said, it's debatable if that's accomplished. Many would say it's not. So how can one say that a transgender woman, which again is a man that transitions into a woman, how can they say that them competing in women's athletics, female athletics, is feminism? And we're su- and they're supposed to support that. I disagree. Like I said, it's anti-feminism. Because all you're doing is you're taking a man... Yes, they're changed. They go through hormone treatments and everything, but you're taking the structure of a man and dropping them into a woman's domain. That's the definition of anti-feminism. 
Transgender women in athletics is counter to the objective of Title IX of the Education Amendments Act of 1972. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Um, Title IX usually is more popular whenever it's talked about with athletics than within education. But Title IX does not just protect or is not just for women, it's for men as well. And it states that no person in the United States shall on the basis of sex be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. Title IX, in other words, applies to all educational institutions that receive federal funding, public or private, including the athletic programs. The purpose of Title IX in athletics was meant to achieve equality between women's and men's athletics. I studied it in school. Um, as I mentioned in episode one, I, I majored in sports management. I have a bachelor and a master's in that. In one of the courses we had to take, we talked about Title IX. And the reason that Title IX, or the way it's mostly applied within athletics, is to bring women's athletics to be equal to men's athletics. And it's to prevent the male sports from having all the teams because male sports generate revenue more so than the female sports, especially football. Football at most colleges is the only income-producing revenue minus expenses sport at a school. Now, some big-time men's basketball programs, Duke, Kentucky, Kansas, so on and so forth, they earn money, and maybe a handful of baseball programs bring in a positive net income. So Title IX was created to prevent there only being male sports and to have female sports, and not only just female sports, but for those female sports to have the same treatment as the male sports. And what do I mean by treatment? Well, in athletics, Title IX is broken into three different parts, equal participation, scholarship, and other benefits. Other benefits include things like equipment, tutoring, locker rooms, training facilities, and, and so on. And I argue that there can be no honest denial of males being physiologically designed to be bigger, faster, stronger than females. That's just how they were created. And I believe this is one reason why men and women don't play on the same sports teams. Males would have the advantage almost all the time. Have you ever compared like Olympic records, especially in track and field? The last place guy in the 100 meters is faster than the fastest woman. I remember in, let's see, when was this? This was in college when I was helping out with women's basketball. I remember every now and then playing against the girls, just, you know, shooting around or whatever after a practice or maybe on a Saturday afternoon or something like that, just, you know, play a quick game of pickup and me and some of the other either equipment managers or practice players, whatever, you know, just staff would play. And I remember for myself personally, I'm taller, I'm 6'3", I would go up against some of the forwards or the bigs, you know, those that play like the 4-5 position, power forward, center. And I mean, I'm not considered tall in basketball terms on, on the male scale, but I'd be considered tall on the female scale. And I remember being able to body up those girls, no problem. Not saying they didn't score on me, but I was able to body them up, block shots. Number one practice, uh, the coach told me to t tone down the defense a little bit because I was uh, blocking too many shots. And I mean, I wasn't there. I wasn't at school on some basketball scholarship. I just played basketball growing up in intramurals and played a little bit in high school. And I was able to do that. So no one can honestly tell me that men and women from like a power speed perspective are equal. 
It's just, it's just not true. That's dishonest, intellectually dishonest. I believe that when you allow biologically born men, now women, to participate in female sports, that that is antithetical to feminism and to Title IX and is a blatant takeover by males of women's sports. And if you followed the news anytime recently, multiple states, I believe Arkansas, South Dakota, I'm not, I can't remember if Florida is there yet. I uh, should have done a little more research, I guess, to refresh my memory before this episode. But more and more states now are creating laws that prohibits transgender women, males that transition to become females, from participating in female athletics. And I believe that if these laws weren't put in place, that it would be the end over time, obviously not instantaneously, but over time, it'd be the end of female athletics. I mean, could you imagine? Could you imagine being a binary girl, training and working your butt off from the time you were a kid, getting to high school, earning a scholarship to college, train, 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 train for years, more than a decade, and you get your shot at a championship? Let's say like a sing- like a singular uh, sport athlete, like wrestling. And then a guy or a transgender woman decided two years ago to transition and is now competing against you in that championship and you lose. Do you imagine? Or track and field, that's another one. Like I said earlier, sprinting. I've actually read articles about this. Train, 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 years, years, years. Blood, sweat, tears. Get to the race. A championship event. And a guy that transitioned into being a woman, a transgender woman, walks up onto the starting line and smokes you. Not just you, but every other woman in that field. Does that feel fair? No. That's anti-feminism. And anyone that says that transgender women do not have an unfair advantage competing in female sports is being blatantly intellectually dishonest. Now, another example, I believe, of the manipulation argument would be that requiring voter ID deprives many Americans the right to vote. We hear that all the time. hear that all the time because 2020 with the pandemic and, you know, having to socially distance and everything, mail-in voting became a big thing. Mail-in voting, a lot of states just passed it and couldn't really test it too much, I guess. And there are different requirements across different states, which is how the Constitution is set up for us. But a lot of people say that there were... A lot of unfair practices. Some just you just mailed out the ballots, whereas like with an absentee, you have to request it. Some didn't require identification to verify who you were with your mail-in ballot. So you see a lot of a lot of states now uh, passing these new laws to shore up their voting laws. And I believe that it's untrue that a voter ID deprives many Americans the right to vote. And I did some research, so let me share some with you. All right. I don't know if you've heard of 538, but 538 is an analytical, statistical uh, company started by Nate Silver. Um, They look at anything from statistics and sports to politics to what have you. So according to 538, 56% of adults currently favor keeping laws that require people to show a photo identification before voting, while just 36% want to eliminate voter ID. Going back to the fall of 2018, so just uh, two years ago, The Pew Research Center, which is very well respected, found that 76% of Americans favored requiring everyone to show a government-issued photo ID in order to vote. That was in 2018, that was 76%. And at that time, only 23% opposed it. As I go a little bit farther into this argument, let me first start by saying this. Every constitutional right has conditions. And I believe that the protection of our voting process, 
which protects our democracy, which protects our country, is so important that it is okay if these conditions might leave some people out. I think it is more important to protect our democracy than risk sacrificing all of that for the inconvenience of 1% or less of our population. For example, the First Amendment guarantees our right to free speech and assembly, but there's conditions to that, such as you cannot use your free speech as slander or libel. We have the right to freely assemble, but we don't have the right within that assembly to riot. The Second Amendment guarantees us the right to keep and bear arms, but there are conditions for that also. The right to vote was given to us by the 15th Amendment, which states that the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Being a U.S. citizen is the first condition of the 15th Amendment. So why can't there be some additional conditions? We require an ID for so many daily things, such as buying alcohol, reserving a hotel or a motel room, to board a plane, to get married, to fill a prescription. So why, why not protect our voting? It just doesn't make sense to me. Now, the American Civil Liberties Union, ACLU, has a few arguments against voter ID. They cite that 21 million people are 21 million as in adults because you, know, you have to be able to vote, so 18 and up, are without a government-issued ID, 21 million. They also say that the requirement to have an ID is too expensive. It could cost, on average, between $75 to $175. That includes, like, if you don't have a birth certificate, you have to pay the fee in order to get a birth certificate, which is varies by state, 15 maybe $25, something like that. Gas for travel, if you have to do things in person, so on and so forth. They also say that the travel is a burden and cite that in rural parts of Texas, which Texas is ginormous. Um, if you've never been to Texas or never looked at a map, um, it is approximately 850 miles to go from one to the east side all the way to the west. Uh, I think that's about a 13-hour car drive. Another argument is that voter ID decreases voter turnout and that voter ID is discriminatory, especially against black or Hispanics. And it cites that 25% of black voting age Americans are without a government-issued ID, compared to only 8% of whites. 25%. I'm going to get into that next. Because I read that and I was just like, 25%? One quarter? I know averages... Don't tell the full story, but I was immediate thought was, so you're telling me if I walked outside and asked four black adults if they have an ID, one of them is going to tell me no? So I did some digging, and let's see if I can convince you that this is untrue. Voting age is 18 and up, so don't think of children, just 18 and up. ACLU says that 25% of black voting age Americans don't have an ID. So I looked at the most recent census, 2020, which says that there are 31 million adult black alone black Americans. So people who are not two or more races and consider themselves black. So single, single race, black American, that's considered black alone. 31 million adults. So we're on, we're going to do this math with the lower end, the, the minimums you can say. The ACLU is trying to convince me, convince you, that there are seven and a half to eight million black adults without an ID? If that's true, why is someone not solving that problem? I mean, that's equal. So again, do the math with me, follow along. 31 million black alone voting age adults. ACLU cited 25% of black voting age Americans don't have an ID. 
So 25% of 31 million is roughly 7.5 to 8 million black Americans. That is the equivalent. I looked this up. That would be the equivalent of assuming that the entire black population, 65 and older, which is 5 million people, does not have an ID, plus an additional 2.5 million, which would be 10% of the remaining 25 million, that also don't have an ID. Can you believe that? Does that make sense? Again, I know averages don't tell the whole story, but what? In order to get to 25% of black Americans that do not have an ID, you would have to take the 31 million of black voting age, black alone Americans, because I didn't have all the data for um, two or more races. You would have to take that 65 and older group, 5 million, remove that from the 31, then you have 26. Then you have to find another 2.5 million in order to hit that 25%. I'm sorry, but I just, I do not believe that claim that 25% of black voting age Americans are without an ID. How the heck do they go and get a prescription? How do they drive? Where are these people? Where are the 7.5 to 8 million black alone black Americans that don't have an ID? And if they truly exist out there and I didn't find that data, then why is someone in Congress or some of the hundreds of people in Congress that would represent these communities not doing more about that? I mean, think of all the things you have to use an ID for. It's crazy. And then think about this. If you're not quite sold yet, or uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Convinced that 25% statistic is not true. I looked it up. In 2019, the unemployment rate for black Americans was 5.4%. So I'm saying just for assumption, I'm assuming that we're going to do 18, ages 18 to 65. You're supposed to retire by the time you're 65, so you're not going to be considered in the unemployment rate calculation. And then I looked it up. What kind of documents do you typically need uh, to be hired? Some of the documents that you need or that can be used to prove who you are is a valid passport, a valid driver's license, a valid birth certificate, a valid state-issued ID, or a social security card. Now, I guarantee you that most, if not all, of those forms of identification can be used if voter ID laws were passed. But if you're to believe the 25% statistic, then you would have to believe that somehow the 90 to 95% of the black labor force, 24 million people, doesn't have the proper identification, but is somehow also employed? Hmm. I'll kind of wrap it up with this as far as the voter ID goes. If you can't afford an ID, there are certain states that will provide you with a free ID. If the fees for a birth certificate cost too much, the way our elections are set up, you have anywhere from one and a half to three years to fix that problem. If driving is an issue, you can apply for IDs online. Voter ID decreases turnout. Studies show that's not true. And if that was true, maybe those people should be more passionate about getting an ID if they're that passionate to vote but can't. And then final argument, again from the ACLU, American for Civil Liberties Union, is that it is discriminatory, voter ID. But voter ID would apply to all races of the United States equally. There aren't different requirements by race to obtain an ID. That'd be unconstitutional. I just read that within the 15th Amendment. And then this. Nothing, this is uh, overall, not just voter ID. Nothing that we are given will ever be able to meet every circumstance of every individual in this country. And that's just the way it is. There are too many of us, 330 plus million, about 255 million adults, and there are too many variables to account for. You can't meet all of them. But what we can accomplish with a voter ID is creating confidence in our election results, which is paramount to our republic. Y'all remember January 6th, right? 
the insurrection on the Capitol, the breach and the riot at the Capitol. Everyone talked about that was that was a um, an attack on our democracy, and that it was because of Trump and his language and his rhetoric that fueled the members of his base in the far right to storm the Capitol. It was Trump's language. Well, what was his language? This election results are fake, a big phony, fraud everywhere, fraud, fraud, fraud. What's one way we could maybe get rid of the accusation that we can't trust the results? That everyone that voted is is the person that they say to be? To get rid of fraud? Voter ID. Ding, ding, ding. Thank you. So in order for us to trust our election results and voter ID can accomplish that, why not, why not pass voter ID in every state? And yeah, this is a partisan issue. You can easily say that Republicans, conservatives are for voter ID and that Democrats are not. I read you the statistics earlier, 57%, I believe it was now, and two years ago it was 73% are in favor of voter ID. So that stretches beyond just partisan. So let's do it. And those that oppose it, what are they afraid of? Now, we've talked about a lot. We've talked about, started off a little bit of fun with the crowd size and Trump's inauguration. Jumped into transgender, biological sex, voter ID. And I'm saying all of these are forms of intellectual dishonesty. And I asked before that at the outset of this episode that what are the societal consequences of intellectual dishonesty? Well, let's recap. Intellectual dishonesty is the advocacy of a position that is known to be false. And it is an argument that is misused to advance an agenda or to reinforce one's deeply held beliefs in the face of overwhelming evidence to the contrary. And what does intellectual dishonesty then leave us with? I believe it leaves us without progress because of the resistance to the truth. If someone presents to you overwhelming evidence to the contrary of what you believe, but you choose to still believe what you believe, then there's no progress. The person that's presenting the evidence might as well just go stand over there in the corner and bang their head up against the wall. Nothing is achieved. But what is achieved, nothing in the name of progress is achieved. But what can be achieved is that that individual finds like-minded people who believe in the same intellectual dishonesty and continues to spread that and spread it and spread it and spread it and spread it, which is kind of similar to the responsibility argument that I made last week or last week and last episode regarding the responsibility that comes with great power and influence. So again, if you haven't listened to episode one, go back, listen to it. It's about responsibility and why you should not be reckless with what you say when you have a platform of great power and influence. Intellectual dishonesty only benefits one side, whereas intellectual honesty, which is the pursuit of truth, benefits both sides. Maybe, obviously, it won't benefit each side as much as the person who is proven wrong would like because they're sacrificing their belief, but there's middle ground there. So what's this call to action, intellectual dishonesty, intellectual honesty? The call to action is to be more intellectually honest. They need to be an independent thinker. Don't be a sheep. Someone tells you something, it's okay to ask questions, do your own research. But so many of us in today's day and age with social media, we just want to fire off, boom, 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 boom. And we don't take time to think. Why think when you can like or retweet? Why think when you can share? But if it's important enough, show that responsibility and do some research. Educate yourself. I don't see any harm that comes from education. And remember, at the beginning of the episode, I asked... How do two concepts that share the same origin become polar opposites? I believe that's because of selfishness and greed. Both of those drive the determination to get what you want from the disinformation being spread. But when someone comes to you to give you truth, 
Don't be obstinate. Receive the truth, change your beliefs, and spread that new belief, that newfound truth, to others. Now remember, intellectual honesty is you not allowing your beliefs to alter your pursuit of the truth. Intellectual honesty, you choose to pursue the truth even if it goes against your previously held beliefs or narratives, and it says that you hold principles over politics. So please, pursue truth, pursue intellectual honesty. And when intellectual honesty is applied in a debate, both are pursuing truth and progress is made. All right, that's it for this episode. Remember to subscribe and engage with me on Instagram at counter underscore thought, on Twitter at counter underscore podcast, and on the Counterthought Podcast page on Facebook. Thank you for listening to Counterthought.